Hi, and welcome to Figure of Speech, a program from WRBH where every week you can meet local poets and writers from the New Orleans community and listen to them share their work. This episode, we welcome on author Anne Reed. Take a listen. Hello. My name is Anne McLean, and I'm delighted to be in the studios at WRBH. Thank you so much to David Benedetto and Sean Jackson for inviting me here. Um, I am a writer. I write science fiction and paranormal fiction. I'm a New Orleans native, and I spent 16 years out in California and Arizona before returning home here to New Orleans to embrace the mysteries of the Mississippi River Delta. I have plenty of experience in publicity, public relations, and marketing, which has provided a fine primer for writing about the speculative, abnormal, and outrageous. I have some science fiction stories in an anthology called Just a Minor Malfunction, and I also have a paranormal romance out called The Incident Under the Overpass, and the second story in in that story arc is coming out in October. It's called The Trouble on Highway 1, and I was going to start by reading the opening of The Trouble on Highway 1. South of Cutoff, Louisiana, one summer in the mid-20th century. Gadunk. Birdie drove down Louisiana Highway 1, the same stretch of highway she'd driven a thousand times before, it seemed. Galliano to La Rose in the evening, La Rose to Galliano in the morning. Gadunk. She passed over a cross piece for a bridge over Bayou Lafouche. Gadunk. Over the other side of the bridge. The night was complete darkness, no moon, the sky swathed in an inky haze. She'd left the Becknells late, waiting for Mr. Becknell to return home from a business trip. She imagined the lights from her truck's headlights were the only lights for miles around. You are a light for the world. Light your lamp where it shines for everyone. The actual Bible verse was a little different, she knew, but that was how Mama used to say it to her when she talked about her gift. Bertie smiled wistfully. She still missed her mother, but she still felt her with her. She missed Mama, but she didn't feel empty, just like she'd never felt empty about Daddy. Her father, the source of her gift, had died when she was very young, barely old enough to remember him. But he had passed on his treater ability to his little daughter, just learning to move in the world. It was Mama and her brother Ronnie who had taught her the lengths and the limits of her ability. But Daddy always seemed present, especially in Mama and Bubba's memories. Now it was her mother who seemed present, right now. She thought of Ronnie and was glad she had just seen him recently. She thought of young Cecil, his precious son, a young man now, several years older than she was when Daddy passed the gift to her. She reached for the radio dial. She'd reached the spot on the highway where she could pick up the radio station in New Orleans. And she was in luck. They were playing one of her favorites, Amazing Grace. She looked to her empty passenger seat and imagined Mama sitting right there. They would sing together. Bertie hummed along until the last passage. Then she sang along, her voice like salted honey, a warm, earthy, resonant note. When we've been there ten thousand years, bright shining as the sun, 
We've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. Bertie didn't see the man standing in the road until it was too late. Too late for her. She swerved to the right, the opposite side from the bayou. In less than an instant, the steep embankment rose up and her truck ended its collision course against a tree. Her eyes opened and her face felt wet. Something obscured her vision. She thought she'd gone into the bayou. She drew the back of her hand across her forehead. Holding it out to the dim light of the dashboard, it was coated in a thick redness. Help. She would need to get help. It was too far to walk back to Galliano and too far to walk forward home to La Rose. Home. Morris. He'd be angry about the truck, but he'd be more worried about her, she knew. None of it would matter if she couldn't get out of the truck and flag down help from the road. She turned toward her driver's side door and focused her effort on the door handle. The front end of the trunk was, cr- was crumpled, and it kept her door from opening. Looking through that window, a familiar figure appeared. Help is coming to me, she thought. As the figure grew larger in her view, she saw him. It was a man dressed all in white. Why did he look familiar? That was the man in the road. What was he doing walking in the middle of the road? Can he help? As the man came closer, her blood ran cold. He had a man's face, but there was something unnatural about it. Bertie thought of a picture book she had when she was a child, a picture book of Bible tales. One page showed the devil's face when he appeared to Jesus during his 40 days in the desert. He had bloodshot eyes and a rapacious mouth. That picture had terrified her. And that's what the man's face looked like. Now he stood right outside the truck. Her limbs felt heavy. He held his palm up to the glass of her driver's side window. All she wanted was to turn away, but she couldn't. She was transfixed. She saw his palm pressed against the glass, but felt an invisible, icy pressure just above her heart. Terror enveloped her, the pressure escalating to an inexorable conclusion. In an instant, she was released. No more horror, no more pain above her heart. She could finally turn her gaze. She looked at the passenger seat, and Mama was there. The light of her smile made the devil disappear from Bertie's thoughts. Bertie couldn't feel her own body anymore but she could feel Mama take her by the hand. They left the truck through the passenger side, and someone was waiting for them. A warm, distant memory made concrete. It was Bertie's father. The three of them made their way to the woods. Like in a dream, Bertie could see her form in the truck, the blood on her face. The devil was nowhere to be seen. Her heart ached a little for the Becknell children, and more so for Ronnie and young Cecil. Morris made her stop in her tracks. He couldn't live without her. She tried to turn around to go back. Bertie felt herself shrinking. She looked up and her parents were on each side of her, towering above her. Gently, they each put an arm around her and carried her until she was whole again. The woods never looked more peaceful. The cicadas sounded otherworldly, heavenly. The smell of eucalyptus enveloped them as they crossed the threshold. So that was from The Trouble on Highway 1, which is book two of the Treater trilogy. And it'll be available at the end of October. 
treaters uh, or something I've, I've learned about in researching this series of books, a uh, series of fiction, paranormal fiction books I've been working on. I look at the word and I want to pronounce it in French, something like trateur, uh, which it, when you see it on signs in France, it means a caterer usually. But in southern Louisiana, uh, it has its own meaning and treaters, as I've heard it pronounced by people down around the bayou and in Cajun country are healers. Uh, and it's a, it's a Cajun healing tradition. And it's, it's very interesting. It usually is passed or the tradition has the treater ability passed from male to female to male. It's always when you have, you, you pass on the tradition to someone of the opposite sex. And so that, that does figure through the, the books. The first book, I'd, I'd like to read from that now. It's called The Incident Under the Overpass. And the whole trilogy is the story of Lacey Becknell, who has the treater ability bestowed upon her and has never heard of it, doesn't, doesn't know anything about it. And so I'm going to read the opening to The Incident Under the Overpass before Lacey knows what's happening to her. This is how it, it comes to her. And you'll notice some similarities between the two chapters. It's intentional. I'm trying to bring some thematic consistency to, to my writing. Gedunk. The sound expanded in her head, empty at the moment except for a feeling akin to bliss. Gedunk. The heavy rhythmic thug echoed like a church bell. It's telling me I'm complete, Lacey thought. The breakdown would commence once she was aware. But in that final instant before cognition, the lovely density of the noise and the euphoric feeling teased at some great truth just outside Lacey Becknell's grasp. Unbeknownst to her, the memory of that feeling would be, at times, the only thing to sustain her in the month ahead. Gadunk. Her eyes opened to a soggy darkness, another gadunk, a slight echo, and then silence. In the long pauses between the sounds, she could hear the trill of crickets. Gadunk again. It worked like an alarm clock. It was the smell that finally roused her, the smell of fresh, dew-topped grass and a faint scent of urine. She flexed her hand and felt a clump of earth yield to her touch. Her back was wet, tickled by the scrubby undergrowth. She savored the feeling for a moment before she realized its meaning. She felt her sides, then her chest, and then her legs. Her clothes were gone, not in tatters or in half-measures, simply gone. She was lying outside somewhere, naked. Fear paralyzed her. She crossed her arms over her breast, but didn't dare sit up. She strained her neck towards the sickly glow of light directly ahead. Beyond, about 100 feet away, a faint pool of light shimmered around a sodium vapor street lamp. Lacey's heart broke as the vestiges of that rapturous completeness slipped away, replaced by a rising sense of panic. Gadunk. She looked up toward the sound. Huge concrete beams sailed high above her. I'm underneath a bridge, she thought. Those are cars passing overhead. The air was warm and languid, but she still, still she began to shiver. She tightened her arms across her chest and wanted desperately to find her clothes. She turned her head away from the light, searching. Gadunk. Lacey gasped and bolted upright. Inches away, a man lay on his back. Fully clothed, eyes closed, a peaceful smile on his face. He had a laceration along his right cheek. His jacket was torn and bloody at the right shoulder. 
He looked familiar. Her memory was patchy. Whatever had happened to her had shot holes through her faculties. What the hell had happened and why couldn't she remember? She willed her brain to recoup and repair. Quickly, she took a deep breath and her shivering slowed. The pungent smell of the outdoors revived her. Her arms and legs twisted into a pretzel. Lacey looked at the man more closely. He looked tall. She knew he was a full head taller than herself. She remembered that from speaking to him. Where? A handsome face, a full head of sandy blonde hair, and a kind expression. How did she know he was kind? She also knew he was strong, broad shoulders and chest, no pudges peeking out from the T-shirt he wore underneath his linen jacket. Solid, lean muscles. He had a solidness her husband did not have. Gadunk. The memory of her husband at home crashed in on Lacey, another panic-inducing rear-end impact. Her heart leapt into her throat as adrenaline surged through her. She had an overwhelming instinct to flee. Running away from here naked might complicate the situation, she thought. She lay back down and took another deep breath. Gadunk. What time is it? Lacey had no concept of how long she had been in this state. It could have been forever. She tried to concentrate. Long intervals elapsed between the passing cars overhead. It must be very late or very early. She remembered the month, June. Whatever time it was, daylight would arrive sooner rather than later. Where am I? She looked toward the area behind her and the sleeping man. She could just make out some picnic tables. Ashen concrete picnic tables. She knew where she was. The I-610 overpass, not three minutes from her house. She could slink away, try to slip into her house undetected, and pretend this whole, whatever it was, never happened. What about Fox? Will he hear me come in? Lacey took another deep breath. Her husband, Fox, wasn't home, she knew. She knew because he had died 15 months before. It still happened to her sometimes, usually upon waking. She would forget about his death and all its circumstances for just an instant, thinking he might be in the living room, asleep on the couch. All the burden of his legacy lifted for a moment of ignorant bliss when she returned to a time when she'd adored him unequivocally. It happened less frequently as time wore on. Headlights approached from the direction of the lake. Her lungs deflated, and she was on the verge of hyperventilation as she waited for the car to pass. She exhaled loudly when its red taillights sped down Marconi and then out of sight. She wouldn't dare sit up again until she had some clothes. She was only about 20 feet from the roadway, easy enough to spot from any more passing cars. Whoever the familiar, sleeping, kind man was next to her, she needed his jacket. Lacey reached out and placed a tentative grip on his right arm. She was blasted by an overwhelming deja vu as soon as she touched him. Deja vu in heat, an interior, in, an interior heat radiating from the base of her sternum. A voice echoed in her brain. This is it. This is what was always supposed to happen. This is where you were supposed to be at this very time. The flash disappeared as quickly as it had come. She pulled her hand away and rubbed her temple with her palm. The frustration of her memory loss manifested in a physical pain. Nathan, she thought. The man's name is Nathan. She didn't know how she knew it, but she was certain of it. The sleeping Nathan adjusted his position so that his right side brushed up against Lacey. That made her ache even more. Gadunk. She tried to focus on her surroundings and develop a plan. 
She closed her eyes in an amalgam of amazing grace, and the memorare prayer flowed through her head. "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. Remember, O most gracious Virgin Mary, remember. That combination of song and prayer had helped her cope with Fox's death. Fox, the love of her life and the source of her biggest heartbreak. Lacey let out a slight laugh. Considering her current situation, the impact of all Fox's actions felt small, or at least smaller, for the first time since his death. Gadunk. Another car approached on Marconi. She held her breath. It passed out of sight, just as the previous one had. Her exposure, their exposure, loomed as crisis priority one. It was time to wake Nathan up. Lacey lifted herself on her side, pulling her legs up to cover her privates and crossing her arm over her chest. It was a momentously awkward position. With her right arm, she gently nudged Nathan in his side, amazed again how he had no apparent body fat. She said his name several times, low but clear. He roused, his peaceful countenance turning into a grimace. He moaned a bit and shooed off Lacey's hand. Nathan, Lacey finally said more loudly. She instinctively looked out to the street to make sure no one had heard her. Lacey, he asked in a raspy voice. Lacey turned her head and saw the confusion on his face. Okay, so at least I know I'm not full crazy. We know each other enough to know names, she thought. Nathan, she said, that is your name, right? Still lying on his back, he said, yes, at least I think so. Where the hell are we? Underneath the interstate, she said. Do you think I could borrow your jacket? Huh? He looked at her, not understanding. Then her nakedness registered. He nodded and tried to keep his eyes upward. Something's happened to both of us, Lacey thought. Neither of our heads seems right. Nathan sat up slowly. He tried not to look at her. Lacey tried to think herself out of sight, shrink herself out of sight. She looked down as she gingerly removed his jacket and handed it over to her. Where are your clothes, he asked. Lacey arched an eyebrow as she slipped into his jacket in a millisecond's time. Good question, and if I knew, I wouldn't have to ask you for your jacket, would I? He returned his gaze to her face and this time smiled at her burst of feistiness. His amusement turned into a grimace and he put his face in his hands. Why do I feel like I have the worst hangover of my life, Nathan asked, lifting his head. Lacey looked down at the bloody hole in his jacket and a dark mark that ran down the length of it. It looks like you were run over. Lacey stood, the jacket coming just to the tops of her thighs. She tried to make herself smaller to somehow shrink the surface area of her legs. She would have to make it work for the short walk home. Nathan looked up at her and gaped. Lacey assumed it was because of the brutalized look of his jacket. Do you think you can take a short walk? We really need to get out of here. I live very close by, Lacey said. She tried not to sound as panicky as she felt. Nathan nodded. He rose slowly, testing his unsteady legs as he stood. He went to roll his shoulder and winced. His T-shirt was torn but didn't look as bad as the jacket. Lacey bounced on her bare heels. We'll take a look at you once we get to my house. Come on. She stood by his side, offering her arm in case he needed it. He looked her in the eye and shook his head. I think I'm okay. Lead the way. Lacey made sure she didn't see any cars in either direction and stepped lightly to the sidewalk. By the time she made it to the train trestle that paralleled the interstate, Nathan was 20 feet behind her. She stopped behind one of the columns of the trestle and waited. She looked back at the interstate and could see arcs of light from passing cars. She thought they were increasing in frequency. Her stomach tightened. Headlights approached on Marconi again from the south. 
Nathan was visible from either direction, clearly impaired and sure to be seen. The chances that the oncoming car was a police cruiser were good. Cops patrolled all over her neighborhood regularly. Lacey ran to Nathan and pulled him to the concrete wall of the trestle. She turned her back to the street and put her arms around him. It was a reflective, reflexive action, born of a need to protect, to cover, to hide. She regretted the embrace as soon as she made contact. She was nearly overcome by another electric feeling of deja vu as she held on to him. The searing heat emanated from somewhere higher this time, a spot at the back of her neck. She longed to break free, but she was paralyzed by an overwhelming desire to know more, feel more, and explore what was happening to her. Nathan wasn't struggling. He looked down at Lacey's face. The feeling passed. She pulled away as soon as the red taillights were out of sight. It wasn't a cop car. She intentionally avoided Nathan's gaze, grabbed his hand, and continued walking. He held on to her hand. I'm sorry I'm so slow, he said in a low voice. It's okay. I hope I'm not making you any worse, Lacey replied in a voice equally low. Lacey's breathing eased once they crossed onto her street, Florida Boulevard. Neither of her two neighbors would be out so early, although there was a very good chance one of them might spy her from his window. Lacey hugged the curb under the cover of a line of crepe myrtles. The nosy neighbor had planted them illegally on the public right-of-way to obscure the view of the train tracks. It was their third year, and their branches were fat with buds. Lacey found it hard to breathe. Nathan gripped her hand firmly, but it felt like he was clinging to her throat. She realized how utterly dependent he was on her at this very moment and how easily he had surrendered to her. It freaked her out. She felt a fierce desire to be rid of him. She broke her focus on the trees and stole a glance at Nathan. Pain and effort were evident on his face. Lacey cursed herself. The desire for him to disappear replaced with an entirely different feeling. He looked heroic, his hazel eyes fixed on completing this grim task, jaw set, body moving with marked determination. We're almost there, Lacey said. We need to turn here. Just a bit more sidewalk and then we'll be there. Lacey pulled away from Nathan and grabbed the key hidden near the side entrance of her house. She waited for him at the base of the steps. A deeper sense of recognition began to seep in as she watched him. Nathan reached for the stair rail, and she turned away, ascending the six steps to her door. Key in the lock, her hand on the doorknob, Nathan stumbled and fell against her, catching himself with a hand to her shoulder. In that moment, she remembered who Nathan was. She didn't turn around but hesitated before opening her door. She was overcome by an acute longing. So that was the opening chapter to my first novel, The Incident Under the Overpass. And for about the past 10 years or so, I've really focused on, on my writing and, and writing full-length novels. Earlier part of my life, I was really more of a reader, more so than, um, than putting the effort into writing. I'm still a reader, but I've been thinking about some of those foundational stories and, and books and, and writers that I read when I was a much younger person um, who have who've influenced me in my writing. One is Walker Percy, for sure. Um, the way he wrote about New Orleans and southern Louisiana was something I've always admired. But then going back a little further, Jane Austen and the way she wrote about 
you could so tell her her heroines how they were feeling in her stories and Pride and Prejudice is very well known and there've been a million movies it seems like on Pride and Prejudice but one of my favorite Jane Austen stories is Persuasion uh, which is a little less well known there is a movie out there that I happen to love but it's it's not one of her better known stories um the the heroine in Persuasion is named Anne, and she spells it with an E, like I do. So I've always liked that about her. So I was going to read just a short passage from Persuasion, and it's a it's a letter that Anne's star-crust love interest writes to her. It's towards the end of the book, and I love I love this letter. Mrs. Croft left them, and Captain Wentworth, having sealed his letter with great rapidity was indeed ready, and had even a hurried, agitated air which shewed impatience to be gone. Anne knew not how to understand it. She had the kindest, good morning, God bless you, from Captain Harville, but from him not a word nor a look. He had passed out of the room without a look. She had only time, however, to move closer to the table where he had been writing, when footsteps were heard returning. The door opened, it was himself. He begged their pardon, but he had forgotten his gloves, and instantly, crossing the room to the writing table, and standing with his back towards Mrs. Musgrove, he drew out a letter from under the scattered paper, placed it before Anne with eyes of glowing entreaty, fixed on her for a moment, and hastily collecting his gloves was again out of the room, almost before Mrs. Musgrove was aware of his being in it. The work of an instant, the revolution which one instant had made in Anne, was almost beyond expression. The letter, with a direction hardly legible to Miss A.E., was evident, evidently the one which he had been folding so hastily. While supposed to be writing only to Captain Benwick, he had also been addressing her. On the contents of that letter, all, on the contents of that letter depended all which this world could do for her. Anything was possible, anything might be defied rather than suspense. Mrs. Musgrove had little arrangements of her own at her own table to the protection she must trust, and sinking into the chair which she had occupied, succeeding to the very spot where he had leaned and written, her eyes devoured the following words. I can no longer listen in silence. I must speak to you by such means or as within my reach. You pierce my soul. I am half agony, half hope. Tell me not that I am too late that such precious feelings are gone forever. I offer myself to you again with a heart even more your own than when, you were, than when you almost broke it eight years and a half ago. Dare not say that man forgets sooner than woman that his love has an earlier death. I have loved none but you. Unjust I may have been, weak and resentful I have been, but never inconstant. You alone have brought me to Bath, for you alone I think and plan. Have you not seen this? Can you fail to have understood my wishes? I had not waited even these ten days. Could I have read your feelings, as I think you must have penetrated mine? I can hardly write. I am every instant hearing something which overpowers me. You sink your voice, but I can distinguish the tones of that voice when they would be lost on others. Too good, too excellent creature, you do us justice indeed." You do believe that there is true attachment and constancy among men. Believe it to be most fervent, most undeviating in Frederick Wentworth, F.W. 
I must go, uncertain of my fate, but I shall return hither, or follow your party as soon as possible. A word, a look will be enough to decide whether I enter your father's house this evening or never. That's from Jane Austen's Persuasion. That was author Anne Reed, and that's our show. You've been listening to Figure of Speech, a community poetry and writing program from WRBH. Tune in on Saturdays at 1 p.m. and every Monday at 9 p.m. for more great New Orleans writing. I want to especially thank Sean Jackson for organizing Anne's visit to the station today, as well as for all the support she gives to WRBH. We'll see you next week, and thanks for listening.